back on Date with the Night, and today I'm joined by someone that was a fixture of the Indie Sleaze era, so integral to the Electro Clash scene, and super influential to fans like me. He is a writer, musician, dancer, director, and author of several books, including Since I Laid My Burden Down and 100 Boyfriends. He's the frontman of the punk band The Younger Lovers and a member of Gravy Train. He is also the founder of his own dance company. I'm so excited to introduce to you today the multi-hyphenate Brontes Purnell. How are you today, Brontes? Hey, how are y'all? How are you? How's it going? So good. So excited to have you here. I was rereading 100 Boyfriends this week, which was a lot of fun. There's so many great quotes in this book that I have to like make a mental note and like highlight them and jot them down because they're just things that I want to like incorporate into my everyday life. I don't know if that's weird. No, I think that is the purpose of literature. I think the fucking charge of writers is to like up the emotional intellect IQ or heart content. Anything I write is yours. Go for it. That actually makes me really, really happy to hear. It's so quotable. You're hilarious and you're just such a great and brilliant writer. And actually, I had to buy the book again because I had a physical copy and then I gave that to a friend and they never gave it back to me. So I had to buy another copy of the book, but I was more than happy to do that because it's just really, really great. And I can't wait for some of the other work that you're coming out with soon, which we'll talk about today. But I kind of wanted to first start off with how did you first get involved in playing music? Because you came up in the music scene in Northern California, correct? I moved out here when I was 20, yeah. You want to just tell our listeners like a little bit of how you got involved in your music scene? Oh my God, it's so many stories at once, but I think the shortest answer is there was Hunks or Seth Bogart that was in Gravy Train, right? Mm -hmm. And me and Seth had known each other since we were teenagers. We met when we were like 14, 15 and it's because we were both on the Kill Rockstars message board. And so as teenagers, he was in Arizona and I was in Alabama, and we would trade each other like zines and mixtapes. He was the first other punk boy who I knew was gay. Like I eventually found out he was gay. I didn't know that. And I knew I was gay. So he was like the first person I came out to. And he moved there and started this band called Panty Raid. Also in Alabama, I had another friend, Vice Cooler, that was in that band XBXRX. And we were pen pals in a similar fashion. But then one day, Chris from XBXRX is like, hey, I'm moving to California. And a person dropped out of the van. Do you want to hop in the van? The furthest west I'd ever been was Arkansas. Like, I'd never even been to California. But I was just like, fuck it. Like, how bad could it be? And I, like, hopped in the van and, like, moved to California. October 15, 2002 is when I landed here. I told you a lot, but bear with me. There's more. My grandmother's brother was a blues musician. Like, my great-grandfather was a blues musician. His son was a blues musician. And so my grandmother's brother, he played blues and had moved out here in the 60s. And I have some of, like, the blues music he put out or whatever. But he started this blues club called Eli's Mile High. Eli was a pimp that got killed there. And after he got killed, my uncle's, like, music partner bought it, and he was, like, head of the band there. And so he would come back to Alabama... Yeah, this is like crazy white hippie girlfriend. And like, this is when I was a teenager. Out of all his like nieces and nephews, I was the only one that could play guitar like his father. 
So he just saw me as the one that inherited the gene. And plus, he had been in California forever. So him and his like hippie girlfriend, they obviously knew I was gay. When I was like 12 and 13, they'd be like, yo, you need to move to California. You need to move to California. You need to move to California. And so in 2002, I did. And that's the shortest way I know how to answer that. That was an amazing answer. I love all of that. Mentioning that you met Seth over message boards, that feels like very of the time. What were some of your other musical influences growing up? I was a fucking riot girl. Yes. I'd always been punk, right? Listening to Nirvana, the breeders and shit. But then I remember getting into like Kill Rock Stars through some miracle. I was reading Seventeen magazine in like 10th grade and they had a tiny little article on Sleater Kenny. And in the bottom, they had an address to kill rock stars. And I became obsessed. I used to call kill rock stars every day. Maggie Vale was the mail order person. And she would just sit there and like talk on the phone and like listen to me. And I remember Toby Vale from Bikini Kill did mail order. And sometimes you get letters from like Toby Vale. And then I remember this drama teacher called gay people a genetic mistake once in class. And so I went home crying and I wrote a letter to fucking Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill. This is when she was starting the Julie Ruin and she actually wrote me back. The people that I idolized as a teenager also actually made time for me. Everything felt very earthbound and I think it influenced a lot of how I perceive art. Those were some of my biggest influences. But then also there was my friend Janelle. She did a famous zine called Tales of Blarg, but at the time it was calling it Desperate Times. And I remember reading that when I was like 18 and like being blown away. There was that zine Doris. It was done by Cindy Crab. I remember there was a personal tone in that I really loved. A good friend of mine, she was a drummer for the New Bloods. When she lived in Florida, I was living in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the time. We were both 18. She was like one of the first other queer black punks I met while living in the Deep South. And we're still friends to this day. I was just staying at her house this weekend. She did this zine called Finger on the Trigger where her girl, Sarah, that was just like so kind of influential to my writing tone. Everything I kind of do, aesthetics around writing, aesthetics around music, just art in general was really happening in these really formative years in my teen years. When I hadn't met anybody and I was just basically writing letters from my room all the time because like, I don't know, I was lonely and I was bored and I was looking for a way to get out. You were a kid of the 90s, technically, correct? Yeah, I was in that last little sliver. People think the 90s was super like progressive and stuff like that, but there weren't that many gay icons to really look up to yet. You had to go search for it. It wasn't like as mainstream as maybe it is now to like find someone that you can connect with. Sailor Moon was the only thing that showed like a same-sex relationship. That was the only piece of pop culture we had. You're so right about that too. And it's just like, when it was happening, everyone was treating it as like the most progressive decade that had ever happened in the history of man. And I guess up until that point, it was. Our current situation kind of proves that we have so much farther to go. Yeah. That sounds like a bummer, but I don't know. The idea that there's farther to go also gives me hope for lots of other things that could happen. There's so many key points to look at, you know. This kind of brings me into like this question about the 2000s because, you know, there is some fair criticism that this era that I'm covering on my Instagram page wasn't very progressive either. And there weren't a lot of gay people within the music community. I mean, but there were a lot of acts like Gravy Train, La Tigra, I'm thinking Lesbians on Ecstasy, Avenue D, like Fisher Spooner, like all these acts that did have representation for the community, but there's this criticism that it wasn't progressive enough. Do you feel that that's kind of true or do you feel like there's just not enough credit given to 
a lot of artists of this era who actually paved the way for how things are today. I definitely think that we were reaching towards something. Like, Sam Smith would not be in a bustier, in a bikini, in a fucking fishnet dress if there had not been, like, some ground tilled for that. I think everything they're doing is everything I saw in Electro Clash Clubs in Canada in, like, 2006. Yeah. But even sometimes I think with Gravy Train, where it originally started as, like, you know, a gay rap band, and that was, like, done quote-unquote. I do think that there was a secret prayer there for someone like Little Nas X to come. When Little Nas X showed up, I remember thinking like, oh my God, we have prayed for him for so long. Even kind of how many like social discussions there are around. For instance, I was a, a Black person in the Electro Clash scene, a scene where everyone was referencing so much Black music, so much 80s music. I remember like maybe like the seven other Black fags that hung out there. But there is weird cultural limitations to things. Things like Afropunk had not popped up. Discussions around representation had not popped up. And quite frankly, I only know a certain group of like black devil worshippers that will even coerce with a bunch of white people on cocaine all the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was not something that, you know, a black boy who is faint of heart is going to come up and do. Like, it was a very specific coven. But I feel like as the internet exploded... Kids growing up looking at it on the computer thought that it was like this commonplace thing. Mm -hmm. It becomes ahistoricized how specific that shit was. Yeah. But then as it becomes like the common language, we forget how very hard we fought for these things. I say this example all the time. Like in the 90s, when you were at Kmart and you saw a boy skateboarding with blue hair, you knew in this point in the past that in seven out of ten scenarios, that was supposed to be your friend. Yeah. As opposed to today, as these trends are like inescapable, you don't know who the fuck that boy is. But there was a time when these things were very deep signifiers. I even look back and I think about like how in 2007, 2008, and this is not a diss, this is just a read, we accepted MIA as a rapper. These days, if you call yourself a rapper, you better be like some girl that can like hold her own in a freestyle, yeah. have bars, diction, word, math, all this shit. MIA is very close to something you would might call genreless. Yeah. Or world music. But that time had such a crazy fever pitch that we accepted her as a rapper. I think that says a lot about what was going on then, you know? Yeah, exactly. There was a bit of a dysphoria to it, but also very fun because where else would you get an MIA? Like, that shit, like, it had so many influences that just clicked. I think the trickle-down happened in how people are not really attached to genre in a way these days. It's just another tool in the box as opposed to the entire identity of something, if that makes sense. There's a lot of talk, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, like, there's not really subcultures as much anymore as there used to be. It feels like the internet killed that because it's sort of everywhere because you can access it on your computer or on your phone. Listen, what they say, that the tools of revolution will eventually become the props of capitalism. Yeah. Even me doing the Gravy Train reunion, all like the stuff I engage in, there is more about it that's more about muscle memory than it is like, oh, this is the defining factor of my life, you know? But I also like that I can finally not have to wear it as a badge. There's a freeness to it, and it's just like an option. You guys gained a lot of national recognition for your live shows. Like, that's all I ever hear is how much fun one of your concerts is. 
How did you develop your onstage persona? How did you establish this? And like, what did you want the audience to take away or feel from a gravy train performance? I was like that little boy that would sit my dad down in the living room when I was five and I would act out scenes from Flashdance for him. That's amazing. It was kind of like this cultural valve, like releasing itself, at least for me. I was in Tryon, Alabama. Like this was like a town of 500. And when I got on stage in Gravy Train, I think a lot of people thought that I was like from California, just like the son of some like black West Coast hippie artist. But no, it was like, before I joined Gravy Train, I had spent like, you know, 18, 19 years locked in a room, no real access like that. To all of a sudden, I was on a stage in England dancing in my underwear with like a bunch of crazy white boys wanting to give me cocaine and like, fuck me. It was insane. It was like some post 9 11 shit. People do not party like that anymore. No. There was just this fever pitch to the time where, like, shit like that could go. I don't think you could actually do that these days. Like, what Gravy Train did, like, it just would not compute. But I remember the live shows were always fucking nuts. I remember even, like, crowd surfing and people, like, fingering me, people ripping my fucking clothes off, not, like, downplaying this or whatever, but it was, like, its own fucking drug. Yeah. Before that... So much of indie rock was about just white kids with asymmetrical bobs and white belts just kind of standing there and looking cute. It was very, like, pose heavy, Mm -hmm. and we were trying to do something very kinetic. I liken it to when The Gossip first came out. Oh, God, like, 1999 is when I saw The Gossip, and it really changed the whole mandate of the scene, man. Like, people don't understand. Like, indie rock was kind of a conservative scene. And so when y'all say indie sleaze... It's like the real deal. It's like when shit stopped being about, you know, people dressing like the Brady Bunch and being all childlike and going to cakewalks. It's when shit turned like kind of crazy, demonic in parts, but definitely fun. I think America still had just enough money for its 20-year-olds to party. Mm -hmm. We're always in some form of Cold War. That was part of the tension. And also, I think the internet was just gaining traction. There was finally the sense of like any party you were at was the party that all the world wanted to be at. And you could put the picture on the internet to prove it. Yeah. Do you remember that party, Misshapes? Yep. We're at the Misshape party in Austin, fucking Texas. Tonks got into a fight with some rich white girl, and I threw the white girl's purse. And as I threw the purse and was about to get kicked out, I see this little light-skinned black girl walking up to me to, like, dance. And she had on, like, nine different types of Burberry and then, like, some Adam ant makeup. And guess who the fuck it was? I don't know. Who? Solange. Oh, my God. This is another thing about that era. That first Solange record, like, Solange had all white boys in the band wearing, like, mod suits. Like, Solange was an Electro Clash girl. Yeah, she was. I saw her with Estelle in San Francisco. She had covered Electric Feel, and then she covered Love Fool by the Cardigans. What other Black girls would have ever covered those songs? It tells a story about her. Anyway, I'm looking at Solange in the face, and I had done some mushrooms, right? I was kind of like, oh my god, it's so nice to meet you. I'm getting kicked out for throwing a white girl's purse across the room. And she just gets this look of terror on her face. Because she's like, who is this shirtless black faggot telling me that he threw some white girl's purse? She deserved it. Her friends get in between us and move her away, and then, yeah, security dragged me out. I've posted pictures of Solange from that era before, and people are quick to say she's not indie sleaze. And I'm like, you don't understand. She was at all the parties. She covered Dirty Projectors, Stillness is the Move, 
brought Jay-Z and Beyonce to Grizzly Bear concerts on the Williamsburg waterfront, and her EP True was released by the label co-owned by Chris Taylor of Grizzly Bear, and Dev Hines was the main producer. So she was in the know and looked just like any other hipster kid in the club. Solange was indie sleaze, girl. That first record, probably Father Knowles didn't let her, you know, go too crazy. But no, Solange, Miss Thing was there. She was at the Miss Shapes parties. She was wearing the damn thing. She was doing the damn thing. You really had to be in the know, too, because it's like if you had blinked, you would totally have missed her presence. Yeah. What's the best show you've ever played? I cannot say specifically, but I can say the town that I loved playing the most was Los Angeles. I had never seen that many fucking brown kids in one room motherfucking wild. And we live in the Bay, so the next to last show would always be L.A. And I felt like L.A. was always the fucking homecoming. The one show that I think is of note that I think is funny is when Chunks read me. We were like in Tucson and I got kicked out of the club for being naked, of course. (laughs) I was in my underwear and she was in some weird cheetah print thing because she had defended me from the bouncers. But then like people were stopping and looking at us and I was like, we have to get back in the club. People think we're just like hookers. And then she just like takes her cigarette out of her mouth and she just looks at me and she's like, you're dressed like a hooker because you are a hooker. And I just remember bursting out laughing. That's the thing that sticks in my mind the most. That's one of them. I actually have an issue where I have been kicked out twice, but I didn't do anything. So I already have like some sort of suspicious look to me where people don't trust me. I one time moved a chair out of the way and I was accused of throwing the chair. And then another time I wanted to go to the club and I literally had nothing to drink that night. I was just really tired And the bouncer was like, are you drunk? And I'm like, no, I'm just tired. And he's like, I don't know. He wouldn't let me in. And I was like, what the hell? You know how some people just like the universe put a sign on their back that said, try me? Yeah. Sometimes I feel that way. So I deeply, I resonate with what you're saying here. So you have your own self-titled punk band, Brontes Purnell. And I heard that you're going to be opening for Bikini Kill very soon. What has it been like performing with your band? And are you excited to be sharing the stage with a band that you grew up listening to? It's always fun. Because, well, you know, also while Gravy Train was happening, I was also doing the Younger Lovers. But now I'm too old to be in a band called Younger Lovers, so I changed it to Brontes Purnell. But we just got signed to Sub Pop. So it's funny that when your teenage dreams come true in middle age, too tired to sleep on couches anymore, (laughs) what can you do better late than never? My, like, birth chart, it always tells me that, like, I will have the most success in my 40s. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's something to look forward to. That's a good fucking time to have it. I don't think you're supposed to make a bunch of money in your 20s playing music. Everyone I know who did, they're either coming back in recovery or, like, fucking dead. So there is something to it where I'm like, I'm glad that it was something that never came easy or whatever. Because to still be, like, using my mind and still having to think about things and flex and figure out things. I don't know. I think it keeps the synapses strong. Yeah. Do you still play the song, I Can't Kim Deal With It? No. To be quite honest, I don't think we ever played that song live. That's like one of the slower songs. And all the drummers I worked with never wanted to play slow songs because, you know, men like it hard and fast. (laughs) I never got to just play that really beautiful song. And yeah, now that era's over, I don't even play Younger Lover songs, so. I just always had like a thing for that song. Has Kim Deal ever heard that song or no? No, but at the very end of the indie sleaze period, I did this indie rock porno called I Want Your Love. It was on Naked Sword. 
the director was in Ohio because that's where he was from. And he was hanging out with Kelly Deal for some reason. Because she's from Ohio too. And I sent her the records and Kelly Deal autographed my records. Ken Deal did not, but oh well. Rude. She wasn't there. I don't think. Okay. What was it kind of like seeing this Electro Clash scene come about? Because I'll see like interviews, for instance, with like Lady Tron, and they didn't like being called Electro Clash. What was your perception of the genre? And when did it kind of like get a name? There was some major magazine. And there was like that girl, I forget her name. She was a major riot girl in New York, but she was in that band WIT. And it was like this article that was like, going into Brooklyn's Electro Clash scene. And it was her with Farrah Fawcett bangs. It looked like she was at a club talking to someone. It was like a picture like that. It was culty and it was quick and it cashed in its chips pretty early. Mm-hmm. It's funny that it's been rebranded because at the time it just felt like everyone was spoofing the 80s. Really, I think everyone was sick of indie rock. Everyone was sick of carrying drum sets. And so there became like this thing of like, oh, I can really just make these like trashy beats on a keyboard and like do my thing. But I do know how Gravy Train got wrapped into that zeitgeist because I really think it was like centered around New York or it seemed to be centered around New York. Mm -hmm. This is before I joined the band, but there was a seminal like compilation that Larry T did. And I think Avenue D was on it, a bunch of other bands. I want to see like Caswell, but that song, Hella Nervous got on it. And I think that's when Gravy Train got fully lumped in with that kind of scene. Because really also too, it's like, Gravy Train really was just like West Coast punks. Mm-hmm. So I felt like when Gravy Train got onto that compilation, they were like crashing this party, you know? Yeah. But then also, too, it's like it makes sense that people don't like being called things because it's like I studied dance and I was in African dance for a long time. And when you take jazz, the first thing you learn is that the people who play jazz didn't call it that. It was like a white media invention. Mm-hmm. People hated being called jazz and You know, just like the first hippies hated being called hippies and beatniks hated being called beatniks. By the time the media gets a hold of something, I think it's always going to put its own spin on it. And then everything kind of just goes wrong from there. Yeah. These are events that happened as I remember it. But remember, I'm a drug addict. (laughs) (laughs) My memories from them days can get a little fuzzy. But no, I'm joking. These are the pieces of that that I remember. I was also wondering, what's the, like, most fun Gravy Train song to perform for you? Okay, no one ever catches this because it was on the later record. It's this song called Frat Party. Yes, Frat Party. I love Frat Party. Chunks would always do this thing where she had this funny way of, like, mispronouncing words and this demonic Valley Girl accent. (laughs) Frat was her way of saying fart. And she would make fart jokes, but she would call them frats. <laughs> That's why the song Frat Party is about farting at a frat party. I love that. I love the music, but the lyrics are just so fucking hilarious. There's one part where she's just like, Alpha, Kappa, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Phi, Phi. <laughs> now it's time for hazing all the sluts turn by. And every time she said that, I'm like, fucking lose. I'm like, losing my shit. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, that's a great song. I fucking love that song. I kind of wanted to talk about what prompted you to write your first novel. I had been writing since the 90s. Like, I did my first zine when I was 14. In 2002, when I moved to the Bay, that's when I started doing fag school. And a lot of the writings from fag school is what became the Cruising Diaries and my first book, Johnny, Would You Love Me If My Dick Were Bigger? Fact school number four was Johnny, 
but I had not really fleshed it out. And so like in 2012, I got this radar residency to turn that zine into a book. The residency was in Mexico. So I went to Mexico for two weeks and I wrote my first book. And I just remember there were people like Michelle T and Alvin Orloff. They were like these punk rock writers, but they always told me that if like you were writing a memoir, you should write it in real time because in 20 years you won't remember. And so somehow between the fucking shitty cocaine and cheap booze I was swilling all through my 20s, I found a way to write that book. This would have been around the time I was 28. And so I was working in the Castro, you know, the gay district in San Francisco. They're, they don't even have punk rock waiters in San Francisco anymore. Oh, no. You go there now and everyone is like wearing like denim, leather strapped apron, and they have like their Hitler youth haircut and they're looking all prim and proper. I feel like we were the last generation of kids that really got to show up to our waiter job looking and smelling like shit. But just looking at pictures and it's like, I'm skinny. I'm wearing all these ratty band t-shirts. I remember I worked with, um, do you remember the band Hercules and Love Affair? Yeah. The guy, Andy, his brother was this gay boy that was in this metal band. And me and him worked together at this place called Sparky's in the Castro. He was in this band called Ace of Alex, I think I remember. But we were in this shitty 24-hour diner. I would be at that waiting job, and that's when I would be writing Johnny. I would write it on napkins in between breaks. And I did that for like a year and a half until I finally had the book. And then I went to Mexico and compiled it all. I consider a lot of your work, all of your books really, to be kind of Indie Sleaze canon. Because they seem to have a lot of stories that reflect this era, I guess we can make sense because that's when you were coming up with your band and writing and dancing. And what kind of kickstarted the idea for 100 Boyfriends, your most recent release? Oh, well, I had gotten the Whiting Award for Since I Laid My Burn Down. And Jackson Howard from FSG, he basically was like, I read your work. I really like it. I have a deal for you if you want to come over to FSG. Is there anything you've been working on? And I've been working on 100 Boyfriends because... My novel, Since I Laid My Burn Down, was like this full story. But my first book, Johnny, Would You Love Me, If My Dick Were Bigger, was kind of a series of shorts. Like Mm -hmm. when I moved to San Francisco, I would go to these writing groups. In 2002, 2003, 2004, the style that everyone was really into was this thing called flash fiction or the short shorts. And it's like where you're supposed to write a short story under 800 words. And the idea is that it's way harder to fit everything into that word count and shit that that would just go on and on forever. Kind of like Reader's Digest or something like that. And I remember I liked that style. And so with 100 Boyfriends, I felt like I was trying to return back to the short story style because I think that's where I shine personally. It was that mixed with the stuff that I kind of learned too. My art wife, Sophia Wang, me and her started my dance company together. I met her at ballet class in like 2008 and we've been inseparable since. But she was an experimental poetry major at Berkeley. And so she had turned me on to a lot of cool shit, like Bernadette Mayers, the language poets, people like that. And so that's why part of 100 Boyfriends sits in like that poetry pocket and the short story pocket. And so it was like kind of me culminating like 10 years of where I felt like the natural progression of my writing language was going. So that's all the tidbits that went into that. So many people love this book. It's won awards. I've read some reviews of 100 Boyfriends where people have said, oh, I can't relate to this book. But I find that really confusing for a couple of reasons. 
One, you don't have to relate to a book in order to enjoy it. And one of the main benefits of reading is to expand your worldview. And two, I found 100 Boyfriends completely relatable. Like, no, I haven't found myself in some of these situations. But the way you observe and write about the world around you just sat perfectly with me, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. The people who have hit me up the most, right, about 100 Boyfriends, it's generally a fucking white woman, middle age, of some subculture background who says, I relate to this book the most. We live in a world where it's still so very segregated. It's still so fucked up. The second you have, like, say, a black faggot writing something, you either say, oh, this is a black person. I have no right to ally with this story, which I think is kind of detrimental, or it's a black person. I'm not going to deal with it at all. I think with the books, most of my influences do write from this kind of universalist aspect, given our social environment, our economic status what we grew up with knowing of the world, this is actually how I assess the situation. And I do think I write with a lot of empathy towards how fucking hopeless or how futile the human experience gets. Yeah. Furthermore, if you write a book about how men ain't shit, who's going to identify more than women? Yeah. I think ultimately sometimes when people are like dissing my work, when they say I can't relate to this, I think what they're actually saying is the work is too colloquial. The work is too human. Too many people identify with this, you know? Yeah. And therefore, it becomes something dangerous. There's so much people can take away from it. And there is a lot about romance and dating and how that kind of affects your life. Like every relationship you have is a story that you carry with you and sort of determines future parts of yourself in a sense. Do you consider your book in some ways a relationship or love-themed book? Yes, totally. I hearken back to that episode of Sex in the City where someone just is like trying to diss Carrie and they're like, she's a sex writer. And Charlotte's like, she's not a sex writer. She writes about relationships. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, for sure. I love writing about like relationshipality and you know, 100 Boyfriends really isn't, like, the boyfriend isn't always another person. Sometimes the boyfriend is, like, your job or your addiction. It's all about these things that we're tethered to. Yeah. When I read Meandering Part 2, that story, first of all, I love it. But then it also mentions Valentine's Day. Like, you're talking about it's, like, 74 degrees, February, it's Valentine's Day, and Black History Month. I feel sexy. What to you, like, makes you feel sexy? Like, what makes you feel confident and just like you can go out into the world and conquer anything essentially you know a good nap and staying hydrated is like <laughs> when i'm at my 10 you know yeah i like a lot of people i know have an epic appetite for self-destruction and i think sometimes like the you know excessive coffee or excessive things I kind of think is set to destroy the godlike in us. Yeah. I think too much confidence, it's like exhausting or it becomes like a certain type of mania. And so I think we kind of ingest these little bombs in ourselves to kind of, in a way, balance and check ourselves. But these days, the thing that makes me feel most confident or the most sexy is not having to do anything at all. I feel most confident when I'm resting. No, I feel you. That's... <laughs> Is there any sort of like outfit just expressing your style or anything like that that also contributes to this? I dress like a Portland dyke and I basically <laughs> always have. When I'm not naked in a performance piece, I'm usually wearing flannel and some Levi's and an oversized band t-shirt. My style has not changed since the 90s and I really got to work on that. 
But no, I do not feel sexy in my Portland dyke wear. I just feel like I'm like, you know, going to get oat milk. (laughs) (laughs) I feel sexiest when I'm naked. Nice. There's a lot of times in 100 Boyfriends where you are given or find something or mention something that is like vintage. Like there's the vintage blue Patagonia jacket. I think it's your first story of 100 Boyfriends that the lover you're seeing gives to you for free. He's the guy that has $80,000 in his bank account. And just his checking, mind you. Yeah, just his checking. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That is a great story. But I love those little moments like when you get a vintage bike. Yes. But also, too, the Bianchi Pista is not even that vintage. It's actually from the 2000s. And I remember what's significant about that bike is they stopped making them Because chrome bikes, the paint is bad for the environment. It truly is vintage then because they're not making it anymore. So Yeah, for sure. It's like over. There's one story where you're in bed and your roommate bleeds all over your vintage Hello Kitty rug. Oh my God. Do you actually own a vintage Hello Kitty rug? And if so, is it still with you to this day? What I'll actually say about that is when I first moved to the Bay, I lived with 20 other kids in this warehouse. And it probably was one of the most life-changing experiences ever. I think once you have lived communally your entire life, never, ever even living alone, you are the type of person, I think, who could sit next to Jeffrey Dahmer on a fucking airplane ride to Europe and not flinch. There is nothing that will shock you ever again. And I'll leave that right there. Yeah, I've only ever lived with one roommate at a time, so I don't have as many interesting stories. Though I really liked reading your perspective of communal living. Oh, and another thing I really liked is your descriptions of lighting. I loved your descriptions of the lights from the disco ball in the first story. It comes up quite a bit, and it seems like lighting plays a significant role in your stories, which I really enjoy. What made you decide to include this aspect throughout the book? Well, I was a theater major, so I'm always thinking about lighting. Joan Crawford had this saying that was like, if you can't catch the light, you can't catch their eyes. And so I think it always kind of sets a tone for like how a room is. If you're having a conversation at 6 p.m. in a room that has a lamp in it, as opposed to if the fucking sun is blaring through the window, those are automatically going to be two very different conversations. I like the line in your book, let's say for a moment you find yourself confined in a room of fractured rays of light, or we could say little rainbows to make them sound prettier. Now would you feel empowered? It actually does remind me a little bit of Sylvia Plath's work, because I know she uses light a lot. You just did a performance in New York. It's a 40-minute dance piece based on one of her short stories. What made you choose this piece of Plath's to like center your performance around? Well, I've been a fan of hers ever since sixth grade. There's this poem called Mushrooms. The last line I always remembered that was just like, by morning we shall inherit the earth. We were all kind of having a rough childhood, and I just remember it was one of the most empowering things I ever read. I like the rest of her work, which is kind of chaotic. And in my 20s, when I was going to this writing workshop, I had a friend, the friend who ran the workshop. She's my big sister to this day. One of the people that showed me the most about literature. She gave me Johnny Panic in the Bible of Dreams. And I remember I love that story because it's like her only sci-fi story. And it's obviously autobiographical. And she like works at this mental health facility where her boss is the god of anxiety. And I just felt like it was too 
good. I've been trying to do this piece for 10 years. And this was the place that finally gave me the funding. I was a shitty dance major in Northern California. It's like every girl's dream to get their solo show in Manhattan. Having my first solo dance show in Manhattan, it just felt fucking epic. And so I felt like I really wanted to take it with the story that I had always been the most obsessed with. You composed the music for it? The sound piece and the music. It was like a lot of soundscape, like text, poetry, all that type of stuff. That's amazing. Are you going to take it elsewhere or? I'm trying to do the showing next year in Berlin and London. Oh, sweet. That would be amazing. This came about post-pandemic because you were at home writing a lot of music and then post-pandemic, you really wanted to get out there again and like dance. Gosh, yes. It was definitely time. My body is still fucked up from that time period. Like- just getting my body back into condition to even like do all the things I used to do has been quite a quite a lift, but also so necessary and exciting. So I'm glad the option was even there. If I can make it down to New York one day soon and it's playing, I'm definitely going to catch that. I should just ask somebody in Toronto if they'll stage it. I'll just come in. I'll bring it to you. Oh, yeah, I should do that. That would be amazing. I'd be like front row and center and be waiting by the backstage door with like flowers. Have you thought about creating a series based around 100 Boyfriends or potentially a movie? It's in the works. FX made an offer on it, so we're going to see how Oh, that goes. sick. That's really, really cool. You are writing a new sci-fi novel, and you have two new poetry collections coming out soon. Yeah, totally. Can you maybe describe a little bit about what you're exploring while writing these works that's different from your previous books or like 100 Boyfriends? So poetry is like the thing that I've always wanted to do, but it's like, you have to be so very like, it's a very vetted thing. I feel like I had to write five books before they would let me write poetry. It's even more intense than flash fiction. Cause it's like every word like really fucking matters. The first book is called 10 Bridges I Burnt and it's a memoir in verse because I never wanted to write an actual memoir, because it just seems like, why would you do that? But if you get to write a memoir in poetry form, there's a lot more fun to that. So that was cool. And then the other one is, I'm trying to deliver it to City Lights. It's um, called Diary of Dead Bachelors. And it's kind of fashioned after Diane de Prima's Revolutionary Letters, where all the men are numbers. But it's about like the logical end of toxic masculinity. It's about essentially 40 men who kind of die alone. Some of their stories are happy, some of their stories are sad. But it really explores what really happens when men don't soften to the world. Because it's like, you know, masculine strength and virility, it only takes you so far. But then as you become more vulnerable and your body becomes more vulnerable to things around it, it's heavy. So I'm at the age where I'm glad I got to write that. And then the sci-fi book is set in the 70s in rural Alabama, and it's about a family of Black psychics who are at war with one another. That sounds awesome. I'm really excited to read all of these. I have a lot of respect for what poets do because poetry is probably one of the hardest things to write well, in my opinion. It's a lot of situation, but, you know, glad I got through it. In interview, Meg, you were asked what keeps you going, and you answered with love is my season. Can you explain what you meant by that? Oh my God. Okay, first of all, that's a Sylvia Plath quote. That's from one of her poems. Which poem is it from? Wait, hold on. I'm like, I know I'm getting old because I used to be able to recite that whole poem. Oh, the quote is love my season, the couriers. So what does that line mean to you? Kind of just like the obsession to keep with the trouble of it, to do it no matter what. I felt like the art I do, I did it when it was popular. I did it when it was not popular. I did it when everyone loved me. I did it when everyone hated me. I did it no matter what. I feel like that is like the true essence of kind of like what love and commitment is to something. 
No, I love that. Do you have a favorite poem of Sylvia Plath's? The Applicant. It's just the part where she goes, believe me, they'll bury you in it. And ever since I was a little boy, I was like, yep, that's pretty much how I feel. I like crossing the water. It's like kind of bleak, but also hopeful. So, (laughs) you know, it takes a real bitch to get into it and see the fucking triumph and all of that. And I just love to float that line between absolute comedy and disaster because I feel like it's really closer to like what the fucking gist of this actually is, you know? Yeah. Since it's Valentine's Day, and this is a Valentine's Day special episode, I was wondering what your ideal Valentine's Day is. Do you like Valentine's Day? I honestly do. I love Valentine's Day. I am somebody who is like completely in love with all of my friends. All my friends are like my boyfriends. So it's like I could go out on a dinner with somebody or I could just like go to like a group dinner with people on Valentine's Day and feel really juiced about it. But I think it should definitely involve like some dinner and some reflective time. You know, as much as we hate it, I am somebody who believes in like magic and there's something about it being a collective day to think about love. There's something kind of beautiful about that in and of itself, whether you are with someone or not, because love is not just about who you're boning. It's also about a place inside. Like, I think Valentine's Day actually can be a magical day, whether you're single or not. Yeah, I love it. I've loved it since I was a kid, making Valentine's for even my brothers or whatever. It doesn't have to be your partner. It can be your friend. And it's a lot of fun to just, like, buy all the candy and, like, watch a romantic movie or go and order in some food or whatever. I was wondering, what is the perfect date, though, for Brontes Purnell? If I could answer honestly, ketamine and a bath. Yeah, why not? (laughs) If you could be, like, silent and comfortable enough with this person to, like, get through the K-hole, that's probably who you should marry. No, I agree. There's one story of yours in 100 Boyfriends. The character, they have, like, a boyfriend they're seeing, but he already has, like, a serious boyfriend and they're kind of just the side piece I guess but they draw like these really nice baths for the character like with lavender and like herbs and stuff like that and I remember reading that and I was like okay this is like my ideal thing because I'm a huge fan of baths (laughs) I was really just like obsessing over the details of this bath and I literally made notes like I have it somewhere in my notes of what was in the bath and that story So just to let you know, my next bath will probably be inspired by 100 Boyfriends. I don't give a fuck if he already has a partner. If a fool pulls out some lavender water out of nowhere for a bath, it's like you should probably stay his side piece. Yeah. (laughs) They had dead sea salt. That's like commitment to the bath. Like that's really providing an experience. So you're like, he imported this shit. Oh shit. Okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite cinematic love story? Oh, The Dot and the Line. Oh, I haven't seen that. It was called The Dot and the Line, A Love Story in Lower Mathematics or something. And it's literally about this dot. And it's like this straight line is trying to get the dot to fall in love with him. But the dot is more obsessed with the squiggle mark because the squiggle mark is chaotic or whatever. So the line keeps reinventing himself until he wins her love. And I think it was made in like the 40s or 50s or 60s, and it's animated. But I think it's one of the most beautiful love stories ever told. Aw, I love that. I'm going to go check that out now. What's your favorite love song? What's my favorite love song? Oh, Session 32 by Summer Walker. Oh, I love that song. That's a great one. I feel like all R&B songs, like no one begs for love in songs anymore. It's like pay my bills or like, oh, I just had sex without a condom. Yay. Or like. I'm wasted, yeah, squirt, drip, 
she's just like begging for love and so old school. It's so vulnerable. And it's just like, it's so human. The first day I heard it, I probably listened to that song like 200 times in a row. And it's still like a new classic. And I love new classics. I love that answer. Do you believe in love at first sight? Yes, of course. There are friends I've had for 20 years. And all of it started because I saw them from across the room and I was like, who the fuck is that person? True, true. What's the most romantic thing someone's ever done for you? I guess stayed loyal to me through all my toughest periods. I look at the hardest periods of my life and it's all the people that stayed there that are the ones that are still there. It creates this chain reaction because you're like, you know, you make sure you never, ever slip too far ever again because it's like... Being willing to change, I think, is like the definition of what one has to do to keep love. If you were to wear perfume or cologne or like some sort of scent, what would it be to like seduce someone? Oh my God. Okay. There's this one I bought at this place up the street called Whiskey Rose. Let me tell you something. I'm also very into scents. Me too. I spent a, like a couple years as like a crusty punk. There was one summer where I showered once in seven months. It was so gross. And all of those places being like, hippie scentless environments but no one ever is like oh what smells like ass and balls in here when there's like 20 gross crusties in a room so like since became like this weird kind of crazy fetish for me whiskey rose is this one where it has like hints of like tobacco and vetiver and so it's just like this really dark musky smell which i really love and what else i learned too i recently really love patchouli it works really well with my body chemistry and also I'm a fucking spooky bitch and a witch, and I found out that it was invented to cover the smell of dead bodies during the plague. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah, so I love that it's just like a death potion coverer, and I'm like, what's cooler than that? What's your favorite scary movies? I, like, don't really like scary movies. Okay, you don't. Okay. (laughs) I like suspense. That movie, The Menu, that just came out, fucking riveting. I remember in high school, the first play that I read, it was like the most dangerous game. You know, where the man takes those people to the island and starts hunting the people. And I thought it was a really great spin, a mix between that and the ridiculousness of foodie culture. Yeah. I loved the menu too. The only thing I didn't understand in that film was why was Nicholas Holt taking pictures of his food if he knew he was going to die? Because he's a fucking insane person. (laughs) Fucking crazy. The fact that he was like the craziest person in the room is like very significant. I love that part. He played that role really, really well. What is like your favorite food to eat when you're hanging out with someone you love? I feel like it's probably like finger food at a bar. There's this Asian food place literally a couple blocks from me, and it's called Porno Bar. There's like this kimchi quesadilla that they have. And when first my friend told me about it, I was like, kimchi quesadilla? Like, oh, that sounds so stressful. And But we were all having it, and it was like the most delicious thing fucking ever. Plus, I am such a fucking pig. Like, the idea of something, people sharing things, like, it keeps me from overeating. It makes me more comfortable. Sophia, my dance partner... She does this thing wherever I'm eating, like she always like has like three or four bites of it. And she's one of those people you can never convince her to have the whole thing to herself. I love that too. There's something about sharing it that just feels so like, I don't know, special and attuned. So do y'all have the poutine in Toronto or is it only in another region? 
No, we do have poutine in Toronto. I think it's probably better in Montreal, but we do. We're down for the poutine here. That is the ultimate drunk food that you have so you don't have like a major hangover because it just absorbs all that alcohol. It's just so rich and like filling and <laughs> greasy. I don't like wet things, so I always get the gravy on the side. But how do you melt the cheese? It kind of like melts the cheese a bit more. First of all, let me tell you something. Here in California, like there's always a foodie revolution going on. But what we call poutine is actually probably closer to loaded fries because they melt the cheese on top of the stiff fries, but then they'll add like mushrooms, then carnitas, and then like whatever else, and then pour the gravy on top. They're just calling it poutine out of fetish. Yeah. They use mozzarella here. I think y'all use curds. Yeah. But the melting point there is so low. It's not hard. Plus, it's just a bunch of salty shit going in my mouth, too. So how can it ever be wrong? <laughs> Exactly. If you come to Toronto, we'll take you out for poutine. Or maybe we'll meet you in Montreal if you ever play there and take you to get the real shit. Do you like flowers? Like, do you like to receive and give flowers? Yes, I totally fucking love flowers. It's also probably, I think, just being like part of the pagan witch community for so long. It's like flowers hold like 300 different metaphors for everything. They're like, oh, it's a celebration of life, pierced flowers, or a celebration of death flowers oh a spring ritual flowers or oh, a winter ritual it's just like why don't we just admit that we just need them every day whenever i'm feeling a little bit down i put fresh flowers in the house i do the same thing do you have like specific flowers that you love the most that symbolize something for you it's sunflowers because growing up my grandmother grew them my great-great-grandmother grew them and it was like my mom had one flower bed this one tiny flower bed and all she grew was like the sunflowers in alabama they're like they're the ones that get up to like eight to 10 feet tall. So I would always really, really love those because it's like one of the few things I remember planting and harvesting personally. Yeah. But honestly, as long as it has color and it can sit in a vase and be pretty, like I've even like gotten into like tree branches, just cutting off like a twig of a tree and sitting it in a vase is like gorgeous sometimes too. So I've done that as well. That's kind of the new territory I'm exploring and florality. I love it. You are such a great guest today. Thank you so much for chatting with me and answering all my questions about your book and your creative process. Thank you for letting me into your world and giving me the honor to speak with you. Oh, anything for you, my love. Seeing your site on Instagram was such a fucking hoot for me. You have to let me know as soon as your books are released. I mean, I'll probably have it on my radar, but let me know and we'll bring you back on the pod. You could talk all about them. Okay, cool. I'm into it. For listeners, make sure to check out Brontes Purnell's books and his music and make sure to follow him on Instagram at Brontes Purnell and see you later. See you later. See you later.